so first, before I actually begin, I just want to say um, some thanks to very important people who actually helped um, organize this. So first, uh, I want to thank Hector Sequera in the music department, um, who actually helped um, corral our, um, our choir. More on that in a second. Um, Sean over here is um, a, a virtuoso um, technician when it comes to all of the um, computer work, so thank you very much. Um, Teresa, who has been very helpful as well, I don't know where you are, Teresa um, Phillips, and um, also Paul, of course, for, thank, for um, thinking of me um, in this uh, capacity. But most importantly, I think, I would like to um, welcome, I'd like you all to welcome um, the, uh, my uh, backup singers, um, if they would come forward. These are my backup group, the Adestalites. Um, so we have here Catherine Bench, Ashley Charlton, uh, Leo Charlier and Tristan Latchford. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. And they're going to provide the musical uh, examples tonight. So um, you've all come to find out the truth about O Come All You Faithful. Uh, so this is O Come All You Faithful, a musical mystery tour. Uh, this is the real story behind um, the legend of uh, Britain's most popular Christmas carol. Okay, so the first thing is to just set the scene. Uh, the time um, of the carol's origin, um, it's the middle of the 1700s, and Catholicism was, as you know, um, prescribed, illegal, um, and very dangerous. Recusants um, were um, deeply persecuted. So you have to keep this in mind, that um, this is a church which, at this time, is an underground church, right? This is the first um, sub-musical culture in, um, in Britain, okay? And the, place, the places that we're going to talk about are Saint-Germain-en-Laye um, in, um, in France. Uh, we're going to look at some Catholic stately homes um, owned um, um, rather amazingly, and it's still owned by some um, Catholic families today. Um, we're going to look at the London Embassy chapels, where much of the music that we're going to hear uh, was performed. Now, who were the key people in all of this? Well, um, without any doubt, um, the key people were the people who provided the money to support uh, the um, production of plain chant uh, in the 18th century, and those are the Catholic aristocrats, uh, without any question. Now, who were these Catholic aristocrats? Well, unsurprisingly, many of them were Jacobites. We're going to learn about the Jacobites in just a few minutes. Um, and the most important person in all of this, unquestionably and without a doubt, is, yes, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Well, maybe not the most important. He's the most important historically. Musically, the most important person is John Francis Wade. Now, Wade is like a Shakespeare figure. Um, we have the works, but we know very little about him. So he himself is a mystery, just like the origin of Adeste Fidelis. Chapter 1. The story begins. <laughs> with the Jacobites. Okay, so let's talk about the Jacobites. Who were the Jacobites? Okay, well, they basically begin um, their existence in 1688. James II flees to France, to Saint-Germain-en-Laye, and there he sets up um, a, a, an exiled court. And so all of the, um, all of the um, Jacobites focus their attention um, both historically, politically, ideologically, on what happens at court and the movements of James II. <clears throat> now, one of the first movements of James II is to produce um, James, his son, the Old Pretender. The Old Pretender um, then um, produced Charles Edward, and um, he is known today as the Young Pretender. Uh, he, uh, he also produced Henry. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Henry um, 
Charles's brother in a minute. Okay, now, what did the Jacobites try to do? Well, it's pretty simple. They tried to reclaim the throne for um, Catholic England. There's a picture of the old pretender um, on the left. <clears throat> and um, this is just a little bit of um, a date giving, um, a little bit of a chronology. 1701, the um, old pretender, he declares himself king. Um, 1708, there's a failed invasion of England. 1715, um, another failed um, Scottish um, Jacobite uprising. James lands, but he fails um, to rally his support. So nothing is going very well here um, in terms of the Jacobite rebellion. 1743, along comes Bonnie Prince Charlie, and I think we know what happens, um, what happens with him. Things go catastrophically wrong um, eventually, and um, he certainly doesn't end up being King of England. Um, so basically you have the single um, most important figure um, coalescing in the person of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender. All hope is placed on Bonnie Prince, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie to restore um, the Catholic, uh, English Catholic throne. Now, what did Jacobites actually believe? They believed, um, again, indubitably, they believed in the divine right of kings. Um, they believed that they had a hereditary right um, to the throne, um, that they answer only to God. Uh, we could question whether these um, principles still apply to the current monarchy. Um, scriptural injunctions. They looked to the Bible um, for this um, injunction of, of a divine right um, to the throne. And they found it, of course, in um, the way that they read the Bible. And, of course, they believed very deeply and intensively um, about the idea of a Catholic throne. So this is, um, a re this is a rebellion in every respect, politically, um, ideologically, and actually what you will see ultimately is culturally, because of course music is part of um, the cultural context of Jacobitism. Okay, so how did they express their beliefs? Well, in many ways. Um, and uh, one of the most obvious ways that we see it is in the um, cultural artifacts that they produced. And one of those things um, is Jacobite glass, which is very beautiful, uh, beautifully made. Um, what's interesting about Jacobite glass um, is that it parades the imagery of Jacobitism. So here on the left, um, you can see uh, a picture of, I'm not quite sure which pretender that is. We're, we're not sure, and the information I have on it was a little bit unclear. Um, but you can see a portrait, and portraits of the old and the new pretender are very commonplace, both in painting, in um, lithographs, in um, engravings, um, you name it, watercolors and so on. Every kind of surface that would take the imagery of um, a, a portrait of Bonnie Prince Charlie or um, his father, um, it would appear in that form. Um, on, uh, in, the middle, uh, in the middle top, now this is an interesting glass uh, because you've got a white rose, it's slightly obscured, it's to the left. This is the top um, middle uh, example. And there are two buds um, stemming from it. And the two buds are um, Bonnie Prince Charlie and his brother Henry. Right? And again, now this, th these, these items are seditious. Right? Just simply to have these items is illegal. Um, and so, of course, they were prized by Jacobites, but they were um, used in clandestine um, circumstances. Uh, you can see below that one, you have the crown of England um, and uh, some kind of insignia. And then, of course, in the upper right one, you see exactly the same thing, but it's, um, uh, you have a crown surmounting um, a thistle. So you have, in a sense, um, built into the um, cultural artifacts of the time, you have imagery which is widespread, and the imagery forms a kind of vocabulary. 
And that vocabulary is understood. It's a code which is understood by Jacobites absolutely everywhere. So wherever you go, you're going to find the same kinds of images. Certain flowers, certain um, types of crowns, certain types of configurations of, um, of foliage. All of these things are meaningful to the Jacobites in um, everything that they, um, they create. So, one thing that they created were Jacobite songs. And here is a good, um, a good example. Now, we're going to try and put this, um, put this on. Let's see if this is going to work. So here's the text. Oh, that's good. Okay, so that's the text. And, yep, and then theoretically this will be the music. Nope. What's up? Oh, it's off. Sorry. idea um, and so you get the idea with that and you can um, see that the um, it has um, the quality of um, of royalty there there are many things being stressed here um, it's political um, very definitely Hanoverian bands and so on so this is this is a piece of um, subversion political subversion um, and you find it in um, Jacobite songs all the time so in the same way that um, glass this seems to be dropping at the same way that glass um, is used with its own forms of imagery. Songs have their own um, textual imagery as well. And so Jacobites would have understood both the texts and the visual imagery. So you have like a pincer movement. You have two different forms of um, imagery which all Jacobites would have understood. Now, we move on if we can. Okay, and I wonder if we can get rid of this, actually. to come is there more music to come? No. So that can come out. Yeah. And can we get rid of that? 
Don't know. Okay. Right. Well, here's another example. So we had a Jacobite song. This is Jacobite poetry. And again, you can see that it's, it's actually in the form of something um, which appears on the surface to be um, fairly straightforward. But as you progress through the text, it begins to be um, increasing, increasingly subversive politically. So by the time you get to the third, um, the third verse, you begin to have Whig hypocrisy and um, maliciousness and all of these sorts of things. Now these words... These sorts of words are, are very commonplace in Jacobite poetry. But what's interesting about this is the connection between, uh, as it were, religion um, and politics. So there, there, there is um, a, a kind of synthesis going on here between um, religious texts, hymns, um, and at the same time, political songs. And that's the key thing to take in, into account. Um, in some regards, you could say that this is a political parody of um, a hymn text in structure. Okay. Mm, easier said than done. It doesn't want to go on. Yeah. Okay, hold on. And good. Okay, so let's move this forward a little bit. Where did the Jacobites express their belief? So we've covered their objects, um, their texts, their imagery. Um, where did they hang out? Well, they hung out um, in Catholic aristocratic houses. Of course, not all Catholic aristocratic houses were, um, were necessarily very safe places to do this, and some Catholic um, houses actually um, were unrelentingly open about their Catholicism. So here we have Water Castle. Um, this um, is an absolutely exquisite um, neoclassical building, as you can see. Um, but this is, you know, this, this is parading um, its relationship to Rome. It's um, a neoclassical building, um, and of course it has a chapel, and in that chapel there was an enormous amount of music, uh, and in that um, musical culture and musical circle, you had circulating uh, people who would call themselves or identify themselves as Jacobites. Uh, this is Stoner Park. This is a little bit different. This is um, more in the neo-Gothic fashion. Um, but here you have it. Um, this is just outside, um, well, some way from Oxford. Um, but this is an interesting building because, of course, it's medieval, so it wasn't built in the post-Reformation period. It was built before that, and it has a chapel that's been intentionally Gothicized. Now, what's interesting about this is the fact that it has been intentionally Gothicized. Um, it's an intentional looking back. It's a nostalgia for um, the earliest period in English Catholic worship, right? Now, plain chant is going to fit into this because plain chant is, in a sense, the musical equivalent of Stoner Park, right? This is um, a kind of music which is ancient, but it's going to be revived. And who is going to revive it but John Francis Wade, who we talked about earlier. And what is Wade going to do? Well, we're going to find out. Here's another example. Um, this is St. Mary's... Oh, it's got cut off. I'm sorry about that. Um, St. Mary's um, in uh, Lulworth Castle. Here you can see, interestingly, this is the, um, the chapel itself. Um, you can see the castle underneath um, at Lulworth. The chapel is there. Again, it's an exquisite neoclassical building. Now, again, this is a peculiarity because it's neoclassical. It's, in a sense, trying to ape Roman design, right? So what, is it, it, what it's doing is um, it's prioritizing Roman aesthetics, right? And what it's going to try to do is, through architecture, try to reestablish itself with Rome. This is a building um, built in the um, 17th, uh, 18th century, and of course, before the period um, of um, the Catholic Church being reconstituted. So, in a sense, this is saying we want to be Roman. We want to um, aspire um, to be renewed as part of the um, Roman Catholic Church. 
Now, so those are just examples of some of the aristocratic houses. There are also London embassy chapels. Right now, the London embassy chapels are the only place in England where Catholics could practice um, their faith um, ostensibly, legitimately. And so Catholics absolutely, they, they came in droves. They flooded the embassy chapels where they could. And so the embassy chapels, because they're foreign territory, um, they allowed um, religious freedom of a, of a kind. Now, the only thing about the embassy chapels is that they, despite that, they didn't want to bring attention to themselves. So they did this very surreptitiously by creating buildings that actually don't look like um, chapels at all, buildings that are concealed behind a, um, behind a neoclassical facade. So here is a very good example um, of um, the Warwick Street Church. Um, on the left, the facade, very simple, neoclassical. It could al almost be an industrial building. Um, it has absolutely no significance in its facade at all. When, when you go inside, it becomes pure um, theatrical magic, neoclassical magic. Um, so this is a good example of where some of the manuscripts we're going to be talking about um, in a few minutes would have been performed. This building still exists, and they still have um, some of their um, 18th and 19th century manuscripts. Another example is the Sardinian embassy. Um, I'm choosing examples um, where we know that John Francis Wade had a, um, a particular connection. Um, so this, uh, this particular um, example doesn't exist anymore. But again, you can see that the neoclassical style is, is yearning to be Roman. It's, it, it's, it's um, desperately trying to reestablish its link with um, the Roman Catholic Church. And again, Spanish place. Um, this has since subsequently been um, demolished in the late 18, well, yes, late 1890s, um, disappointingly. Um, and it was replaced with an exquisite, massive, um, cathedral-like uh, neo-Gothic church, um, more akin to the um, ideology of the time. But there you have it, um, very neoclassical again. Okay, what did the Jacobites have to do with O Come All You Faithful? I think you're getting some clues. The plot thickens. Okay, so the first clue, there are several clues, um, and this is going to uh, require our, um, the Adestalites. Um, so the earliest music that we have that bears any similarity to it at all is this piece called Raj Nutile um, in Akaju by Favar. And it, um, it is basically a pantomime from 1744. Now, you'll, when you hear it, you will immediately hear the similarity with the Deste Fidelis. Um, it's called an Air Anglois. We're not sure whether it's a parody of a Deste Fidelis or a Deste Fidelis is taken from this particular pantomime. We just don't know. But 1744 performed in Saint-Germain-en-Laye. Okay? So I think you get the idea. There is an enormous similarity. Of course, 
Adeste Fidelis, as we know it today, is, is a much better tune. Um, it's, it's better completed. But this, I mean, it may be that the um, odd bits in this are actually a parody. They're intentionally um, parodying the uh, original tune, because it, it actually doesn't make very good melodic sense. This would get a low to one. <laughs> okay, clue number two. Um, let's talk about John Francis Wade um, and who he was. Okay? Um, well, this is his obituary, which I think you should read. 1786, August 16th, Mr. John Francis Wade, a layman, aged 75, with whose beautiful manuscript books are chapels as well as private families abound in writing which and teaching the Latin and church song he chiefly spent his time. This is from um, Coughlin's very famous um, directory, uh, the laity's directory from 1787. So we have a little bit of a sense for when he might have lived, um, 1711 to 12. He's clearly a renowned um, aristocrat, a, a renowned plain chant scribe. He may well have been an aristocrat as well, we don't know. Um, a, a plain chant scribe to aristocratic families um, and at the London embassy chapels. So it's clear that he made his living this way. Um, he was a publisher also of Roman Catholic books. That's not something that comes up in um, Coughlin's uh, Laity's Directory, but we know that um, without um, any doubt whatsoever. Um, we, uh, and in fact, I'll show you some of his works. Um, in 1731, he was a student at the Dominican College in Bornham, and there is a reason we know that. Um, he joined the Confraternity of the Rosary in 1734, um, and he might have ended up in Leeds. We're, again, we're not sure. Uh, Shakespeare figure. 1735, there's evidence that his father had converted um, from Anglicanism to Catholicism, um, and he gives some money to Storton Lodge um, for the Dominicans. There's a priest in 1761, Pacificus Baker. He baptizes what we think is Wade's daughter. It's a little, Wade is a not uncommon name, so we're never really sure um, whether the evidence is about John Francis Wade or someone else, but it fits with other circumstantial evidence. Um, later, there's a, um, a John Wade in the registers of Lincoln's Inn. That seems plausible. That's around the embassy chapels. Um, and then he's also importantly mentioned in a, this absolutely fantastic um, a diary of uh, a woolen um, cloth merchant named William Maud. Um, this comes um, about in the, I think it's 17, uh, 1780s, early 1780s. So here's clue number two. Well, um, this is um, the connection to Ushaw. So what you have here um, is not a, an example of John Francis Wade's manuscripts. What you have here is a copy of a manuscript that Wade may well himself have copied in other sources. So this is someone else copying a manuscript that Wade himself might have used to copy other things. So what that means is that we need to look at similarities between this manuscript and Wade manuscripts. And if there are similarities, which there are, we can prove that, um, this, that the Wade tradition came um, originally from the English Dominican um, house at Bornham in Flanders. This is the most important document, if I can say that, of the English Plainchant Revival, because this proves where the English Plainchant Revival began. It began in um, the English Dominican um, house at Bornham in Flanders. If we hadn't found this um, in the Ushaw collection, we would never have known that, and we would have never been able to trace um, the provenance of Wade's manuscripts. So that is the key. Some of the key features of this I've highlighted the, um, the, the exquisitely um, uh, illuminated T. This, as it so happens, that's actually a rather simple example. Some of his manuscripts are exquisitely illuminated, like a medieval manuscript in gold and flowers and so on. I'll show you one in a minute. And then this unique A, which I've um, circled twice, 
with the, um, the crossbar as if it were a V. That's something you only tend to find in Wade manuscripts. Um, it does appear in other sources, but um, it's a common feature of his work. And lastly, on the very far right, you have um, this little um, notice which says, by JPC. Now, this is James Peter Coughlin, the Younger. James Peter Coughlin, the Younger. So it makes the connection, crucial connection, between um, uh, Coughlin as the publisher, his father, and, um, and Wade. And you can, we'll get some information on that, and we'll hear more about Coughlin's influence um, on the Plainchant revival. So this is arguably the most important Plainchant manuscript um, in the English Plainchant revival. So here we have an example of um, a Wade manuscript. I'm sorry, it's slightly cut off. Um, it's been interesting to me to actually revisit Wade's manuscripts because now um, th you can find a lot of them online um, and uh, in Google Images. And th this is where I found this particular one um, just this morning. But you can see this curia. Now, what's interesting about this is this is a Douay Mass. And the Douay Mass appears in all of um, Wade's manuscripts. And of course, um, Douay is where Ashaw College began. And so this mass was the mass that would have been used in the College of Douay and then subsequently brought back um, to um, the community here. Uh, so this is a very good example. You can see the illuminated manuscript and you can see um, the really exquisite nature of, um, of the calligraphy. Uh, on the left are uh, a list of his uh, manuscripts going back from 1750 um, up through the 1760s. And then there are um, several untitled and undated manuscripts and I gather from um, hearing from other people that they've now found actually many more um, Wade manuscripts. There were a number that I had tried to see when I was doing my research on this, um, which I couldn't. It just was, um, they were unavailable, unfortunately. <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about the earliest plain chant version of Adeste Fidelis. This is the one on the left. Uh, it's, it's actually um, repeated um, in a 1751 manuscript at Stonyhurst. Uh, but the one on the left is, as far as we know, the earliest, and unfortunately, it was destroyed in a fire. Um, there is just that uh, uh, from it. Um, that's just what we know, nothing more. Um, but the, the examples are identical, so I think we'll sing that. I think you'll be surprised to hear how this goes, because instead of the, um, the duple meter that we're all used to, the, the kind of common meter that we hear um, Adeste Fidelis in today, this one is in 3-4. And it's in the form of what we call a saraband. And a saraband is like a, is like a processional, um, a processional march. Um, people used to get married to a, in the Middle Ages to a, a saraband. Um, and this is a saraband, so it has a slightly martial quality about it, and it's in 3-4, and it stresses the wrong beat. So it stresses beat 2 instead of beat 1 and beat 3. So let's have a listen. Adestalites, you're on.
Okay, so very syncopated, actually, surprisingly syncopated, and martial, I would say, very slightly martial in its quality. Um, here's another uh, example. This is the slightly later one, and this is getting closer to what we know. This one is from St. Edmund's Ware, and it's a massive um, choral antiphonal. It's absolutely immense, and it gives you a, another sense um, for the beauty of the manuscripts themselves. Um, this was um, used at benediction. So, again, can we have the Adestalites? Ah, now, I should say, we're going to perform this at um, original tempo, just this one. Um, now, original tempo, we know from, in, uh, from a book from 1822 called Convent Music that plain chant was performed at 66 per beat, as it were. That's really slow. And the chances are that it has sped up by that time over the um, 50 or 60 years since these manuscripts existed. So it must have been even slower than 66 when um, this was um, performed. So we're going to try to perform it at this tempo. And you, uh, in a way, you kind of lose all sense of the, the um, thrust of the melody. You can, you can decide for yourselves. Okay, here we go. So I'll give you four. One, two, three. Four. Okay, we, we move on. Okay, now, clue number three. Now, this is where it starts to get really interesting because here you have a manuscript. Again, this one's lost. It's so frustrating um, because we can't see what else is in the manuscript. But um, this manuscript is peculiar. Can anybody see what's going on here? There's, um, in the third line down, what do you have here? But you have Jacobin, right? James. This is the old pretender. Right Now, what's interesting about this? Can you see what's going on? Look at what happens. You have Domine Salvum Fac um, Jacobum, right? And then you move seamlessly into Adeste Fidelis. This is crucial, right? Because ultimately, there's going to be a link. Okay? Okay,
idea. Okay? So then you have Adeste Fidelis next to it, and you can see it there. Now, this Adeste Fidelis is actually the triple time version, which is in, in itself, again, it shows the development of the, um, of the uh, particular version at this time. Now, okay, clue number four. Okay, Adeste's, you can sit down for a second. Um, okay, clue number four. Now, I said that Wade had published uh, uh, plain chant books uh, and um, had worked on liturgical, uh, as a liturgical press. This is one of his books from 1773. And we know this because, if you look at the very bottom of it, um, it has JFW, printed uh, for JFW in the year 1773. But this is very unusual as a liturgical book because it's just jam-packed with code. Um, and so where, where do we find the code? Well, in the first instance, um, we find it, I would say, um, fundamentally in the bottom, just above, the, the bottom three lines, just above printed for JFW. Can you all see that? Um, and there, what you have is a, a cryptogram. Now, that cryptogram has to be read a certain way in order to be um, understood. So you have to go from the word quos. Can you see it? Quo, and then into the middle, and then back up. Quos anguis tristim um, diro um, cum vulnere um, stravit, and so on. Hos sanguis Christi tum munere lavit. Um, what, uh, who lays the, um, is, is laid with a, um, down with a, a dread wound um, by the snake, um, Christ's blood. Um, revives or um, makes whole again. It's impossible. Someone else can do better than me. Um, but you get the idea. Now the question is, of course, who is the snake? Right? What is this doing on a, a Vesperale from 1773? Well, um, all of the imagery that you have there um, is effectively Jacobite imagery. The snake, of course, um, is the, um, the, the usurper um, king. Um, Christ, of course, is ultimately going to be um, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and um, he's going to save with his blood, save, um, save the um, people with the sad dread wound. The sad dread wound, of course, is exile. So this, the imagery of that particular cryptogram, well, it's pretty obvious if you read it, but um, Jacobites would have known this. They would have known that imagery, the snake, the blood, um, and so on, the dread wound, all of that would have meant something to them because, of course, they would have grown up in a culture which understood the imagery and the vocabulary of, ja of Jacobite imagery. It gets better because inside is this. Um, you have a, an actual engraving of Bonnie Prince Charlie, beautifully, lavishly illustrated with all of the imagery that you would expect that we found on the glass, um, that we find um, in um, other um, portraiture, and then What's interesting about this is why this particular page? What is the point of, this, um, of putting it right in the middle of the book? Well, you could say, well, it's in the middle of the book where it's going to be um, best hidden, right? And it's just, I think in this version, it is just slightly smaller. Um, so it doesn't actually fit the full size of the book. So theoretically, you could close the book and you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't know that there's an interleaf um, portrait there. But what's interesting is actually not necessarily the portrait itself, though that is very beautiful, but look down to the right, and what you see under the hymn is Vexilla Regis Proteunt. Now, Vexilla Regis Proteunt, that's an interesting hymn. Why? It's a battle hymn, right? And this hymn, therefore, is taking on the mantle of Jacobite vocabulary. So what you have to do is you have to interpret Vexilla Regis Proteunt and all of its um, own um, imagery and metaphors and so on 
you have to interpret it in a Jacobite way. So behold the royal ensigns fly. Well, the royal ensigns flying are the Jacobite royal ensigns flying. And um, who is involved? Um, not just Christ, but Bonnie Prince Charlie. Another example here, um, I thought I'd show you. This is the last prayer. If anybody has any doubts that this is a Jacobite book. So if you look at the very bottom, um, I'm going to try and... It's hard, hard for me to read that. Almighty and um, uh, something God um, who... I can't even read it, sorry. <laughs> you can see. Almighty and everlasting God who saves us and would have no one perish. Look, at, look on the souls of the English, Scotch, and Irish, deceived by the allurements of the devil, that having forsaken all their wicked heresy, they may repent of their errors and return to the unity of thy truth through Christ our Lord. Okay, this is a clarion call for Jacobites. Okay, clue number seven. It gets even better. Now, this is, this is a very early manuscript and um, liturgical book that Wade himself published. Um, it's a Roman gradual from um, 1737. And interestingly, it has, of course, the plain chant written in. Uh, you can tell that it's Wade's um, plain chant um, style unquestionably. What's really uh, interesting about this is the floral imagery. Right? Now, often you see uh, exquisitely foliated examples of head ornaments and so on. Ah, but they don't all compact with Jacobite imagery. You've got the um, fleur-de-lis, the thistle, the rose, every single flower that you could possibly associate with Jacobitism is jam-packed as the head ornament of this. Now, again, you have to ask yourself, why there? What's the point of having it there? Well, the point is that this text too, as we will find out, has um, a Jacobite, it can be read as a Jacobite text. Here's another example, this, um, the, the head ornament reused. And again, it's interesting that um, some of these um, are um, nativity items. They're, they're used specifically for the nativity. Um, and this is curious. You might ask why that is. Of course, you, maybe um, you're finding out where this is going. But the association with Christmas is important. Why is it important? Okay, well, let's talk about birthodes. These were a common um, form, uh, common genre in the period. And here you have a Jacobite birthode, right? To Bonnie Prince Charlie. Guess when it was written? 1720, around the time um, of, his, of, of, his, um, of his birth. And this links Bonnie Prince Charlie and all of the imagery to Christmas because he was born on the 20th of December. So Bonnie Prince Charlie's birth and Christmas imagery go hand in hand. And you see it in an enormous amount of Jacobite poetry, Jacobite song, and um, Jacobite birth odes. They're very commonplace. And here you get all of the imagery. The tidings we have now received, which freshly are come to the land, have chased all my sorrow away and left both joyful and proud. No more are we going to be under subjection to George. Joy will come in the young prince's time. Is this all sounding vaguely familiar to you? Yeah? Sounding a bit like a very famous Christmas carol that you all know? Okay, now I said Papalusia um, in the first um, example with um, exquisite floriation. Um, well, if you want to translate this into a Jacobite um, hymn, what you do is you say, well, Popolus Zion, the people of Zion who are the persecuted um, or exiled English Catholics, ecce dominus, um, behold the Lord, Bonnie Prince Charlie, veniet ad salvandus gentes, shall come to save the Gentiles, the Jacobites of England. Hodie Shietis, um, the second intro that I showed you with all that lovely imagery. Um, today, Catholics, you will know why the Lord Charles Edward shall come. Um, he, Charles Edward, shall save us, the Jacobites, and by his, 
Charles Edwards' hands, you shall see his glory. Um, in other words, restoration of the um, Stuart throne. Um, the land, England, um, and its fullness in the Lords, the, Stuart, um, uh, the Stuarts, and uh, Charles Edward. Heaven and earth, which is um, commonplace for England, um, which shall live in him, Charles Edward Stuart. So what you have here are Jacobite um, liturgical texts, and every Jacobite would have known the imagery. And they would have read this, and they would have read it and interpreted it in a Jacobite way, because they knew the imagery. It was commonplace. The denouement. Okay, so let's have the evidence all over again. So the music first appears in a Parisian musical parody or pantomime of the exiled Stuart Court. The music appears again in 1750 in the manuscripts of um, John Francis Wade. We know he, um, uh, he used to um, hang out in the embassy chapels um, and in aristocratic houses. Um, you can see them in his published works. Um, there are unmistakable Jacobite sympathies in all of his published works, floral imagery, cryptograms, prayers, portraiture. Um, and Wade purposefully locates the Jacobite imagery adjacent to liturgical texts. Everywhere um, is the same. Okay, so here it comes. This is the denouement. Um, the Jacobite Christmas Carol. So, Adeste Fidelis means, according to um, Jacobitism, draw near ye, ye faithful Christians, or um, attention, faithful Jacobites. Leite triumphantes, venite, venite in Bethlehem. With joy to Bethlehem, England, come. Natum videte, regem angelorum. Behold the king of angels, or a very classic pun on anglorum, king of the English, Charles Edward Stuart. Again, all of this is um, uh, commonplace in Jacobite poetry of the time. Anyone with Jacobite sympathies would have read Adeste Fidelis for what it was, which is nothing more than a coded form of Jacobite expression. Okay, so that's basically, that's basically it. But there's an afterlife, because here we are, and I'm talking about Adeste Fidelis. So, very quickly, um, how are we on time, James? Good? Okay. We've got a, a... Don't, don't get too excited. All right, don't get too excited. Okay, well, okay, here, I'm going to try not to get too excited. So, basically, there are two, two branches now. There's the Anglican branch and the Catholic branch. Um, what happens is that um, Anglicans and Catholics alike attend the um, music performed in services in um, the London Embassy chapels because they become renowned for their musical performance. Um, and so what you find is that both, um, there are both Anglican and Catholic traditions stemming from the music that was used at the embassy chapels. The first example that we have of this is something called the Portuguese hymn. Um, it, it appears, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't actually find the original source for this, but I would speculate that it's 1790s. 1790, late, late 1790s. Um, and this is an Anglican version of the hymn. Um, and it's very beautiful, but it sounds very similar to what we've heard before. But I thought it would be nice to hear it. Of course, um, it was performed at the Portuguese Embassy Chapel, um, and it acquired that name. But it's Adeste Fidelis by any other reckoning. Adestalites. Thank you. 
good. So now this is the um, this is the next um, Anglican um, offering for you. This is very famous. This is uh, hymns ancient and modern. So it makes it into the absolute standard um, hymnal repertoire in the Anglican Church. So we'll sing this, and then from this point, we're going to get, revert back to um, the Catholic history and um, take 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 that a little bit further. Okay. So we're going to sing this in, in English, <coughs> properly. No, no last Okay? One, two, three. talk about the Catholic um, revival. And um, so what we had, Wade's manuscripts, and Wade's manuscripts eventually filtered straight into late um, 18th century practice uh, in the embassy chapels and houses and so on. This is an essay on the church plain chant. This is the very first plain chant treatise published in post-Reformation England. So it's extremely important, and it's just full of Wade's influence. We can see it in almost everything um, that it contains. It contains things like um, songs. It's a bit like an 18th century Lieber's Wallace. Um, it contains a lot of material of music, but it also includes some um, rubrics and uh, some instruction on how to chant. So uh, we're going to sing uh, just one example of this um, in two parts, okay? parts. <laughs> now, it gets a little bit more elaborate as things go on, and um, Catholicism becomes more firmly rooted um, and, um, and becomes freer. So um, this is 1792, just a few years after um, Catholics basically um, 
had uh, established their freedom in a, in a very serious way. So this is, a, in, a, in a way, this um, particular example is very celebratory, and I think it sounds that. It's, it's very richly um, ornamented, it's in four parts, or even five or six, depending upon how many singers would have added parts. So it's a very rich um, experience in, in contrast to the 1782 version, which was very thin on the ground. century. I, I tried to choose examples that um, were in some way linked to events in Catholic history. This one is just um, about 10 years or so after the um, restoration of the hierarchy. So this again is, a, this is in a sense um, a church in transition. Um, it's a very simple, I would say extraordinarily basic um, example of Adeste Fidelis. It's not beautifully harmonized, but um, I think there's a certain uh, beauty in its simplicity. This is um, 1928. Now, you all probably know about the Liber, um, which is a, a putatively comprehensive book of uh, plain chant. Um, and, of course, it's a massive book. And uh, I just happened to be searching through uh, my own copy of the Liber. And guess what I found? I found this, which is the most phenomenal act of inauthenticity you could possibly <laughs> imagine. I, is, is, is it not amazing to see um, Adeste Fidelis, a hymn, a pretty square hymn at that, actually dr um, dressed to look as if it's medieval solemn plain chant? 
So now we're going to sing this in a plain chant, a solemn-like plain chant version. This is very difficult. They're going to do it unaccompanied too. You're going to try it unaccompanied? Okay. This is really tough because it goes against all, all of our... Um, all of the way that we understand the tune. We just, it's hard to go against our experience. Here we go. Okay, you're going to be, I'll, I'll come around and conduct you. chant top 10. <laughs> okay, so this takes us um, more or less up to the um, present. This is, um, I had to throw in something American. This is, the, this is um, an American version. This, this is um, uh, published in Boston, the Pius X hymnal. And um, it has, again, it retains the key of, um, that it seems to have found um, A major. Um, it seems to have gravitated over... Um, a couple hundred years from the key of F major up um, a few notes to the key of A major. I don't know why that is. It's something I, I don't really understand. Um, it is often performed in F major, but um, the A major, may, maybe it gives it a little bit of a shine that it doesn't have um, when it's performed a little bit lower. Anyway, this is the last example. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing this, and then um, you are all going to be singing Adeste Fidelis. Now, when you sing it, the thing is you have to remember who it's all about, okay? So, that's the important thing. Right, so we'll do one verse um, just with the choir, and then um, I'll put up the next slide and we're all going to have a sing song.
good. So. Okay, so now is your chance to join us. Um, now, you're going to have to sing it. No English. Don't think that you're going to be able to get away with singing it in English. It's all in Latin. Just do your best. Okay? Four verses, all four. One, two, three, four. Okay? Thank you very much.